Georgie's work outside of the Beatles is a story in itself, encompassing recordings with Matt Monroe, Peter Sellers, Jeff Beck, some Bond film scores, Scylla Black, America, Cheap Trick, and Ultravox. But his career in the industry began in a very different field. I was called into Abbey Road and EMI Records to produce classical records for the Parlophone label. That was the only reason I was asked to join them, because they had a group called the London Baroque Ensemble, and the guy who ran Parlophone was a little tin pot affair. He did a fair amount of classical music, but it was too much for him. So he wanted a young man to come and take in all this classical stuff. George was a year out of the Guildhall School of Music, where he'd studied the oboe. He wanted to be a composer. Abbey Road offered him something completely different, recording orchestras and ensembles directly onto wax discs. Rising through the meagerly staffed ranks, George became the head of Parlophone at the age of 29 and was responsible for everything released. Welcome to this week's One Day with Fab. I'm Ed Shan. And I'm still John Stone. First off, we did get a little bit of news. Ringo did add a couple dates to his tour. That's nice. Must be feeling good. Thankfully, he's managed to avoid the ick this time around, hopefully. Second off, we did get a little bit more info on that uh, Stowe School gig. Yeah, the full set list. And uh, we did get a little bit more from the fellow who recorded it. According to him, he is working independently to try and clean up the audio. And what he wants to do is he wants to get it into some sort of historical context in Britain. We'll see what Apple and Universal's lawyers think of that. Right. Business dealings like that are always somewhat complicated, but I think there's an interest in it. As you were pointing out before we started, it's a historical thing now. It's no longer just, oh, well, let's get this out to the bootleggers and so somebody can make some money off of it. The fact that it's right at the cusp of Beatlemania, the first album had just come out. And so you really get an idea of what their presentation was like at that point, because there's quite a bit of cover songs in it. The originals that they had weren't that plentiful. So they were playing a lot of the music that would be featured on the BBC. I was a little bit disappointed. There's no single song in here that we haven't heard them do a version of before. I mean, I was really hoping that there was a version of Sheila on here, but nope, they didn't do it. Right. Mark Lewison hit it right on the head. It is the first full-length recording we have of a Beatles show in England. That alone makes it 
something to preserve and something that people should be allowed to listen to. Right. And it's in concert form. You know, the Star Club, you had a lot of audience noise. This is them playing their show. And I think I mentioned last week, listening to the versions, they played them more like the recording tempos. They weren't trying to rush through and do their show in 30 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. So that I thought the versions of things, please, please me. And I saw standing there were more comfortable to listen to in a way. And the version of monkey business is just so rocking. I love the BBC version, but this is just that much further. Yeah. The set list was Sawyer standing there, too much monkey business, love me do, the first original as, as the third song. Some other guy, Misery, I just don't understand the, the Anne Margaret cover. Right. Which we did get in the Hamburg set. And we got a BBC version of, didn't we? We did. Shot of Rhythm and Blues, Boys, Matchbox, From Me to You, Thank You Girl, Memphis, Tennessee, Taste of Honey, Twist and Shout, Anna, Please Please Me. Hippie, hippie, shake. I'm talking about you. Ask me why. Till there was you. Money and what is listed as a reprise of Sorry saying that. So they did backload the originals into the show. I was pleased to see my two favorite early copy tunes, which is talking about you. I really like that song. And some other guy. This one may be as good, if not better. We'll see once we get a chance to hear it. Then the Granada Cavern version. I mean, that's always been a real exciting version of the song right okay our main topic for this week uh, we decided to go back and look at an arena special arena the british bbc documentary offshoots one of them called produced by george martin from 2011 and uh, released here in the states first in 2012 this is not to be confused with the six cd set produced by George Martin. Correct. Although it obviously covers a lot of the same territory. And I think particularly for a British audience refreshed their memories of the things that he'd done before the Beatles, which were popular. In addition to the produced by George Martin box, which is actually a fairly rare now, it goes for hundreds of dollars used on eBay these days. Does it really? Oh my gosh. Christmas money. <laughs> <laughs> Just last year, there was a box called George Martin, A Painter in Sound, Pre-Beatles Productions and Classical Influences from Cherry Red. That's a really nice box, and that collects a lot of the stuff that you might not have heard from Pre-Beatles. And that's a story that's very interesting, which we'll cover as we talk. But it's good to know where George Martin came from, because he is, after all, the fifth Beatle. He has some interesting perspectives on how he got to comedy, and how comedy would then influence the way he worked with the Beatles. Absolutely. It's an important part of the story. The show opens with George and Judy, and I was impressed with how much credit they gave to Judy. We think of Judy as being George Martin's wife, but there she was. Right. We know a lot more about how they got together, courtesy of... Oh, <laughs> Mark Lewis did. Ken Walmack and Mark Lewison. Yes, that aspect of the story isn't really covered in this. It's just more of their business association. They completely skip over George Martin's first marriage. And it's like, right. okay, I get it. But maybe just a brief mention would have been nice. Well, they are British after all. <laughs> oh, by the way, I was married before and, and had two kids. And I was buying that house for that family, not for Judy. <laughs> we learned that Judy is very posh. So 
<laughs> she apparently had lots of fun reading John's poetry. With faithful frog beside us, big mighty club are we, the battle scab and frisky dyke, deft head, Danuta and me. We fight the baddie baddies for color, race and cree, for Negro, Jew and Bernie, deft head, Danuta and me. Thawed Billy grows and Burnley ten and Aston Villa three. We clobber ever gallop, deaf Ted, Danuta and me. So if you hear a wondrous sight and blutter or at sea, remember whom the mighty say, deaf Ted, Danuta and me. Deaf Ted, Danuta and me. Yeah, I also was uh, impressed with George's driving skills. Opens up with them driving along. The top is open. That's a 1960s vintage vehicle he's driving. Right. The license plate is 893LPF for those of you who are. <laughs> There's soundtrack and you get a crawl on the screen saying, George Martin is one of the most influential producers. He produced a bunch of people and then the screen goes black, dot, 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 <laughs> and the Beatles. For a long time, all I really knew was his post-Beatles stuff, C-Train and America and Jeff Beck. So it took me a, a little while to come to his early stuff, which I didn't know specifically, but knew the style. The children's records and the record about the elephants. Band. When Nellie was leading the big parade, she looked so proud and grand. No more tricks for Nellie to perform. They taught her how to take a bow when she took the crowd by storm. Her trunk and said goodbye to the circus. Do you like the goons and Flanders and Swan and that sort of stuff? It's a very stylized comedy. I like some of it, and some of it were just too far from for me to really kind of get. A country away and uh, 70, 80 years away. It's broad at times, <laughs> and some of it just kind of goes right over my head. and the, the audience laughs, and I'm thinking, what are they laughing at? And I just assumed it's a reference to something I don't know. But some of the records, can't remember the duo's name. Flanders and Swan? That's it. Very cool. You've been uh, wandering around all over the place since we saw you last. We went to uh, America, New York. We spent uh, two dreadful, delightful years <laughs> in, uh, in America, entertaining the Americans, whose need, let's face it, is greater even than yours. And then, of course, when we're over there, we say that the other way around. On a Monday morning, the gas man came to call. The gas tap wouldn't turn, I wasn't getting gas at all. He tore out all the skirting boards to try and find the main. And I had to call a carpenter to put them back again. Oh, it all makes work for the working man to do. On the Tuesday morning, the carpenter came round. He hammered and he chiselled and he said, Look what I found. Your joists are full of dry rot, but I'll put them all to rights. Then he nailed right through a cable, and out went all the lights. <laughs> Makes work for the working man to do. 
was on a Wednesday morning. The jokes are kind of old-fashioned, but not necessarily then. You can see where Monty Python came from if you listen to some of that stuff. Yeah, the evolution of the whole British comedy scene is real interesting because people play parts that you'd be surprised. You know, David Frost and some of the stuff I was surprised at, things like Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren. That's a fun record. <laughs> Not politically correct, but yeah. And then Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Yeah, love them. There's kind of the bridge between what was comedy and what became comedy in the 70s. Yeah. It's a little bit funny to think from like Magic Christian <laughs> that where were these guys 10 years earlier? Well, Ringo was in Roy Storm and uh, Peter Sellers was just starting to get his comedy career off the ground. Right. And Dick Lester was in that scene. Very early television, yes. Yeah, burgeoning. Recently, I read... Uh, a book called Funny Girl, a fiction book set around that time. That also kind of gives you a feel for the Dick Lester world, the whole business of what did TV look like in 1960, 1961, 1962, where this fictional show kind of would have been up against Steptoe. This novel is about the birth, life, and death of a fictional sitcom. And it's about clever people working at the top of their game and having fun and being unable to stay there because no band or collaborative team can ever stay permanently wedded forever. Um, even though when we love their work, we wish they could. So it's about the funny girl of the title, who's uh, the star of this sitcom, and her co-star, and the two writers, and the producer. Okay. That's something that, that we kind of don't think about. After they get out of the car, we, we start with kind of a nice little homey scene. They don't really go chronologically. They kind of skip back and forth through a number of different things. It, it almost plays like a greatest hits of George Martin. Yes. And the fact that the biggest thing that he did probably was the Beatles. It reminded me of the interview I saw with Giles Martin not too long ago, where he said, you know, the Beatles really weren't part of our world at home because that was dad's job. He didn't bring all that stuff home. So I can kind of see where it's homey in his house. Yeah, Mark uh, Lewison has commented that Giles is still kind of holding a grudge against him for revealing that story. And, well, I can see why. It's family. <laughs> that dirty laundry, we, we don't want that out there. And as you say, they are British. Right. We see George Martin with Giles, and, and Giles is the first of the talking heads that we get here. And they're talking about when he came to EMI and George falling for Judy. And Judy says... No, no, no. In the beginning, he, he was definitely uncool. <laughs> they play with each other a lot. They have a, a long, easy relationship, obviously. Did you think George would get the job? No, I didn't really. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, I suppose I did think he might get the job. But he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't sure. 
Oh dear. They said, we've been wondering what to do with Parlophone now that Oscar's gone. And eventually we've decided that we should give the stewardship of Parlophone to George Martin. Despite the first marriage, they were together for 50 years at this point. Right. The first marriage was a starter marriage, which everybody should have. Says the man who's had it. <laughs> well, Don't knock the black Oh. <laughs> he missed it. Giles and George playing billiards. Again, a very British thing. And we kind of see the competitive side of George Martin, which they go into a little bit later. Giles brings that out. He actually states you know, that his father is competitive and ambitious. At this point, they go back and it's like, well, what did you want to be? I really wanted to be a classical composer. George says, Rachmaninoff II. Yeah, and plays something that is reminiscent of that. So they talk about how his post-war life led to the uh, Guildhall School, which is really kind of interesting you think about the external influences on the beatles you had brian epstein who'd gone to rada and you have george martin who'd gone to the guild hall they were bathed in old school british show business right i think that's what lewison refers to as kind of the miracle of their story the way things locked together in relationships to to create what they did it's weird that at one point jane asher's mother who taught oboe to George Martin, does a quick interview. Well, is your oboe. I had to sell it. I needed the money um, to buy a house, in fact. My, my first house was the money from the oboe. You've still got yours? Oh, yes, of course. You treasure it, do you? Yes. But you don't play it, though, do you? Yes, I do. Do you really? Well, you never forget. No, you never forget, but gosh, I don't think I'd, I could play one now. Oh. I'll give you one lesson. Would you really? For nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that is also just an amazing coincidence. Yeah. She kind of looks like Peter Asher. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Well, I mean, <laughs> is that unexpected? No. <laughs> I mean, the pictures of their dad look more like Peter Asher. Yeah. The question is, where did they get the red hair? The parents had red-ish hair, but it wasn't this, this bright shock of red hair that both of them inherited. Yeah. It's really nice to see Margaret Elliott knee Asher there. You know, maybe once or twice I've seen her in other things, but it's really nice to have her here. Yeah. She offers to give George Martin an oboe lesson again. <laughs> when that relationship was young, as we're talking about, between Paul and Jane, you know, this had to come up. Like, oh, are you being produced by that nice George Martin? Yeah, you can move in. <laughs> that was one of our questions from the viewer mail show. It's like, what led to all that? And, and I'm sure that was certainly part of it. I'm sure George Martin probably vouched for him. Right. And they may well have had dinners together through the years. For sure. So that then leads to 
George Martin showing off his yesterday score, which we've seen in a couple of other places, but it's framed here. Right. And, and he talks about that his upbringing, his musical training uh, had allowed him a kind of naivete, which again is what worked to a great extent about the Beatles. Right. Speaking of that score, it wasn't some lush Phil Spector or even Buddy Holly where they put on a bank of string. It had a, a sound to it. And so, you know, you, you almost get the feeling that Martin was going to learn this thing along with this band. And then as we move to like Eleanor Rigby, he certainly talks about how it was the psycho strings that influenced him, the, the sharp jabs, but no one else would have done that in quite that way. We're 20 minutes in and the Beatles have really only kind of been tangential to the story at this point. We move on from the yesterday score into George Martin getting hired at EMI at Parlophone. Not in the role that he would come to be. Uh, he's actually under a gentleman. My name is George Martin and I'm Oscar's assistant. And he's asked me to take the session this morning. So it's nice to see you. He said, oh, all right. Don't get in the way, will you? He's not in control, but he gets to play around in the studio and learn his craft. Yeah, and that is what he said was one of his greatest memories was having the toy box of the studio to work with. When Giles asked... Did any part of you think, I'm going to be in line for this job? No, because I was young. I was still in my 20s. And all the people who ran the, the labels were older. The youngest was about 50. And Judy is, like, very surprised at the memory. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't think you'd get the job either. Or that he'd even keep it. <laughs> then they go through some of the things that George Martin did pre-Beatles. Uh, one of the ones that was an artist that I wasn't overly familiar with, Roberto Inglés. Right. Inglés with a Z. And he did kind of salsa stuff. They show a, a video clip, and uh, it looks like they've slightly darkened him with makeup. And, and he, uh, he, he has the whole Ricky Ricardo thing. Right, because his actual name is... Uh, Bob Ingalls. Bob English. And he's from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> he just got, fell into salsa. As I say, Ricky Ricardo is not a bad comparison to you know the Babalu, the stuff that Ricky did on the I Love Lucy. But right. so you know they they go through the beginnings of his comedy career, Nelly the Elephant, Carl Haas, and Coronation Scott, which became a theme for a television show. And then another one of those uh, interesting meetings, which would kind of play into the future, George Martin recorded a couple of sides under the name Ray Cathode. He was into electronic music because he had met and actually done some work with Delia Derbyshire. That work sounds more modern to th these ears now than some of the other stuff. He was ahead of his time. As we can't pass up the opportunity to make some Doctor Who mentions, Delia Derbyshire was the woman who was responsible for the original Doctor Who theme, you know, much like Star Trek with the theremin, she did it all electronic. And, you know, that was in that same circle. Right. So she was working with George Martin, whether he had any input in it or not. It was very much the electronic, the non-acoustic instruments when such things really kind of didn't exist, when it was a matter of getting an oscilloscope and getting tones that way. Right. And then, you know, bending and stretching them as best you could. I think it 
Right along this time, he, he mentions that one of the things that he considered important was that, you know, all the other people in the company who were running labels were older than he was. And so he really had a young man's view of things at that point. And they didn't. <laughs> and he thought that was his advantage. Uh, Oscar Preuss was looking to retire at that point. And so, you know, George was just starting to think, well, you know, maybe they'll give me this job as the head of the label. And eventually we've decided that we should give the stewardship of Polyphone to George Martin. And they got him for a penny. By the time the Beatles came along, it was... 2,000 pounds a year, which is, you know, okay. Slightly better than a working man's salary, but not like anything special. When he had brought EMI millions of pounds. Exactly. From Dealey Derbyshire and Ray Cathode, we now get Michael Palin talking about George's involvement in comedy. He had to create records that attracted attention. He's got to sell records, and he didn't have a Cliff Richards or any, you know, that kind of thing. So he had to create attention. So he started doing comedy records. As Michael Palin asks him, how did you get to comedy? Well, we had Humphrey Littleton. Of course, we know Humphrey Littleton because his piano intro into Bad Penny Blues got transmogrified into the intro to Lady Madonna. So they had a couple of acts that went through. They had some skiffle acts. The Vipers is another one that had some popularity, but they weren't hugely popular. Paul McCartney liked them. <laughs> right. He covered their No Other Baby. Funny, though, I was talking to George Martin on the phone the other day, and I said, I was telling him about No Other Baby. I said, we even did this song. I said, I have no idea we even did it. I've, I've since found out it was by the Vipers, you know. And I suddenly realized when I was talking to George, I said, wait a minute, George, you recorded the Vipers? He said, yes. I did. I said, well, this song's called No Other Baby. How's it go? He said, well, I said, I don't want no other. He said, oh, yes, I remember it. So we turned up talk about coming full circle. George actually recorded the original. George's response to, to Michael Palin's question is, how did I get to become a comedy producer? Desperation, really. Right. In creating a comedy record, often you, you had to create a picture, you know, that wasn't just stuff, music and sound and sound effects. And so that was part of his development at that point. Yeah, and that is one of the more unique bits that they have here. They have George Martin sitting there looking through a book of paintings and then a book of photography. There's a quote here by Degas where he says, Drawing is not what one sees, but what one must make others see. And in a way, that's what we do in sound. The recording is not what one hears. But what one must make others here. A painting has more depth than a photograph could ever do. You get where his brain was at. And that came from the comedy. He really began to hear painting in sound, basically. And when I came to working as a producer, up to that time, people had been making records as faithfully as they could, reproducing the original sound. And what they were doing was making photographs. And I said, well, you don't need to do that. Let's paint instead of having photographs. We get a little bit of Flanders and Swan. We get a little bit of the goons. We get a little bit of Beyond the Fringe, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. The acts which would become the basis of British comedy and really something which would mean a lot to the young Beatles. I mean, John and Paul in particular. Yeah. Paul comments on it later, but that's one thing that struck me from Lewison is that they really did kind of know the name. I think at one point, Martin asked, did you think that you were kind of taking a, 
a step down because it wasn't one of the higher levels, so to speak. Paul's response was, we did kind of wonder why are they giving us the comedy guy rather than the music guy, but okay. It wasn't a problem. It was just, that's different. Well, I think Martin also says, well, they tended to send all the weirdos to me. That wasn't him. That was Rolf Harris who said that, and well. We won't go into poor Rolf Harris. In the intervening years, a scandal has surrounded Rolf Harris. Let's just leave it at that. We'll just besmirch and run. (laughs) You Google it, you'll find exactly what ended with Rolf Harris serving some time in the uh, institution, shall we say. Right. George Martin was kind of going back to music a little bit from the comedy. The comedy was hard. The story's not here, but he had recorded a parody of Bridge on the River Kwai, and it actually called it Bridge on the River Kwai, but the movie people came to him and said, you can't do that. So they made him cut out every single K, and the skit became Bridge on the River Y. (laughs) It's not like you just bring it up on the screen. Oh, there's the K. He had to physically splice the tape. That's wild. We get a couple talking heads from the comedy world. Michael Palin mentions one of the records that he really liked from the time. And George Martin comes back with, did you notice that the sleeve notes are all in Arabic? Right. That kind of breaks Michael Palin up. And it's like, yeah, that's very much something that Python would have done. And it's true. We get Rolf Harris talking about Sun Arise, which is, have you heard that record? Don't think I have. That was actually on the charts in Britain. At the same time as Love Me Do. It's kind of a drone. It's aboriginal in nature. Is it comedy? No, it's not. It's almost kind of a precursor of what George would do. The Indian stuff. Huh. It's an aboriginal style record. And the story that is here is that Rolf Harris wanted to do something like that and came to George Martin. He, he played in the song and George Martin kind of said, well, it's a little bit boring, don't you think? <laughs> and it's like, well, no, no, that's the point. You get this tone and you get this drone and it plays on and on. And eventually you start to get it. I haven't heard that one. I hadn't heard it either. Uh, the first time I listened to it was a couple months back for Poppermost, and it's like, oh, wow. I get what they're talking about. I mean, I heard of the song. I actually had never bothered to go and listen to the whole thing. Do you know the chart position that it achieved? It got into the top 20, and it actually even got a little bit of notice here in the States. Yet again, another Doctor Who reference. Bernard Cribbins, uh, the single right. that he had was Right Said Fred. <laughs> Tried to shift it, couldn't even lift it. We was getting nowhere, and so we had a cup of tea. And right said Fred, give a shout for Charlie. Up comes Charlie from the floor below. I like Bernard Cribbins' comment. He was very tall. Yes, I thought he was a very tall person. He had a great air of serenity and authority about him. Excuse me. It's not emotion, it's hay fever. <laughs> And of course, Bernard Cribbins is this little guy, you know, five, six or something. And then the title of that song became the uh, title of a new wave group, Right Said Fred. 
He then continues with the, he had a great air of serenity about him. Very proper. The RAF lieutenant with the scarf flying in the wind. We skip from here back to George Martin's childhood. Although the very first thing they tell us is George and Giles are sitting around talking about how George Martin's accent is completely made up. I mean, it's not a made up accent, but it it had nothing to do with his upbringing. And he had to learn to speak like that. Right. Fascinating. I thought that was just really interesting, you know, that he would work at cultivating a different accent on purpose because of class, basically. Ken went into that a fair bit in the first volume of his George Martin bio. As a kid, he went and made this little record, and then he announced it as being a song by George Martin, and and it just didn't sound right with his voice as it was. Actually, I was very conscious of the voice change because uh, when I was about 16, I composed a piece on piano, and I wanted to record it. So I found there was a little studio in Cavendish Square, and I went there and recorded my fantasy. And at the end of it, I said, you have been listening to Fantasy in C-sharp minor by George Martin. Pompous little prick, really. (laughs) But when I heard it back, all I heard was, you've been listening to Fantasy (laughs) in C-sharp minor. See, you were telling me I was getting it wrong. By George Martin. Actually, that's an exaggeration too. (laughs) But then then I, I decided that I spoke appallingly. You don't know until you hear yourself. And because I was in the dramatic society, I consciously tried to speak like the BBC people did. Pompous little prick. (laughs) Speaking of himself. (laughs) Growing up, I was told, you don't really have a Texas accent. I was brought up all my life in Texas, but I I figured I grew up on Johnny Carson. So that became my go-to way of speaking for the most part. Then a bit more about George Martin's poor upbringing. We, we get some nice photos of his family from his youth. Ken gives us a much more stark picture of what the young George Martin's life was like. I think he has rose-colored it just a little bit here. goes back to our point that it's not really an in-depth, inside George Martin kind yeah. of view. Kind of the worst story that he can come up with was that they couldn't afford a hot water bottle, and so they may do by cleaning out and then filling with boiling water an old petrol can. That and the fact that his mother was crying over the fact that she hadn't any money for the ice cream man. Well, he had a a poor childhood. It was a rough childhood. What we got out of Ken's book was how he managed to come to music despite not having the money to get into that world. How by the time he was in his teens, he was able to compose something. I had a grandstand view with the dogfights that went on overhead. And it was quite exciting for a 14-year-old boy. We heard that a Dornier had been downed quite near. So right. being bloodthirsty boys, we went and raided the place. And I got a bit of a German officer's uniform that bloodstained, you know, really not <laughs> really charming stuff. It was wartime and you had planes literally overhead shooting back and forth at each other. And now we get Ringo for the first time. Ringo replaces Michael Palin in the hot seat here. (laughs) Not so much because they both shared poor upbringings, although there's a little bit of that talk here, but more for war talk. 
Yeah, their memories of being children during the war. We've read a lot about that. You know, the bombs would fall, and the next day, warehouses used to be, kids would go out and play. Right. There is a particularly vivid memory of George Martin's of a, a house which had been destroyed, and the bath was sitting there being held onto by the pipes. It's interesting to get Ringo's point of view that, that you just kind of accepted it, that that's what wartime in Britain was like. We like to build these stories, the, the whole stiff upper lip thing, and it's not, well, that's just the way it was. I think that's pretty true of most war zones. Kids will still be kids, and they'll play, and some will be more connected to what's going on than others. But that's what's going on in your life. What are you going to do? Not accept it? And so George Martin tells of going to his mother and explaining to her that he was going to join the fleet arm. And my mother broke down in tears and said, you stupid boy, you'll get yourself killed. And the stupid boy replied equally stupidly, mother, I promise you, I won't get killed. I promise you that. He's right, <laughs> pompous little prick. How could someone at you know eighteen or nineteen in the middle of the Second World War go and tell his mother that and believe it? Well, you're right about that. I think that's not an uncommon story for young boys going off to war. Well, and maybe you had to. That's the only way you could get through it. And if you didn't get through it, well, <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. So now Paul comes on and tells of when the Beatles would ask him about, what did you do in the war? There's a funny little exchange uh, where they are both on each other about getting older. (laughs) We get George Martin explaining to him the business of the observer. They're the two guys in the plane. There's the one flying the plane. Then there's the one who, I guess, nowadays it'd be more the navigator is kind of what we would call him. Yeah, although I think he it was more than that. I mean, he he was to pay attention to where they were going, where the enemy planes were. I mean, there was no radar at the time, so what information could you take back? If and when they had to drop bombs, make sure they fell in the right places. <laughs> Paul's description of it is that when he thought about it, that that is exactly what George Martin was. He was the producer. <laughs> and that's the same thing he was doing in this little two-person plane. <laughs> is it Paul clever? There, I think he actually was. <laughs> we move on to a, an interlude where they're talking about the oncoming deafness of George Martin. When you stopped hearing certain frequencies. This is the part that struck very close to me because I've had major hearing loss. I mean, I've, I've had operations to improve it. But when he talks about how you put things together... You know, when you listen to conversation and you've lost that part of hearing, basically your consonants disappear. When you listen to people, what you're getting is vowels. And so your mind works really hard to kind of put those consonants where you can. And you lip read. It's kind of an exhausting thing. And he talks about being cut out in a way. Mental crosswords is how he describes it. Right. I don't know whether I would have put it here but, it, you know, I'm glad that they included this bit. Oh, yeah. I, I thought it was probably part of what he insisted go in. I mean, you know, here's a man who's famous for his hearing. <laughs> uh, he's created these great recordings. And then he has this major 
major loss. So I thought it was great. And I particularly liked them playing that violin piece and then taking the frequencies out so people can realize exactly what he's saying when he goes, you know, I don't really enjoy listening to music anymore. I mean, if you take a piece like Four Millions Like Ascending, mm. I might as well go home because the violin Very high is in the upper reaches. Yes. And I see this fellow doing all this, and I'm a human. Yeah. And it's like, oh... That's what's going on. Then his story about being in the studio and as the tones are going through and then it's it's 12 kilohertz and it's like, oh, uh, that's not good. Right. They have a woman there who's doing the transcriptions to the screen above and George Martin pauses (laughs) during his speech and it's like. Now, I think what she is doing, what this lady is doing here is fantastic. And I think she's so accurate and so good. Uh, can you come home with me? Flash up to the screen and she's typing, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they don't spend too long on that, but we do get a good, you know, three or four minutes on it at least. Yeah. They then throw us back into the comedy world a little bit. Peter Sellers talking about Major Ralph, which as best I can tell is a combination of Larry Parnes and Colonel Tom. But the acts that they're talking about. The rock and roll acts. What we would now describe as rather fey young men that he was bringing in and renaming. I thought that was really pretty funny. Yeah. We get a little bit about Nori Paramore. You cannot hear the George Martin story without the name Nori Paramore coming up at least once. He clearly lived a good portion of his life being totally consumed with envy, the ambition to beat him in whatever competition he envisioned. So it's a big part of his story. I did envy Nori Paramore enormously. Did you want to beat Nori Paramore? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> You've said it now. <laughs> well, he drove an E-type Jag. <laughs> See, there we are. <laughs> they do spoil the end of it there. It's like, you finally got more number ones than Nori Paramore. And your comment was, well, he's not going to beat me now because he's been dead for several years. <laughs> right. We're maybe a little bit more than a third into the story. And we finally get our formal introduction to the Beatles. Because this is not about the Beatles. <laughs> exactly. So Judy talks about that it was the 21st that they met Brian Epstein and, and she put down Bernard. Yeah, that actually makes me go, really? You didn't get his name. That wouldn't be hard. I don't know how exactly true that this was. It, it probably was true. But I mean, again, given what we know about how all of this kind of actually came about, he had turned down Brian just sight unseen and then it's finally okay you need to do this and it's like okay fine i'll i will have a meeting with him they play a little bit of besame musho and george martin tells us well no no i thought their music was rubbish yeah and he did it's like that little bit in the ruddles did you like their music no i hated it (laughs) right he doesn't go into any of the stuff that was unearthed a few years back about really what were the motivations of the recording of the Beatles? 
And he didn't know about that at the time. Because, I mean, it was really sort of anthology era that Mark Lewis started to come up with some of this stuff. Right. He would have known about it. Whether he knew all the details at that point or not, I don't know. But he would have known what had been uncovered. Yeah, he's doing a little bit of myth-making of his own. You can't be in the Beatles circle without embellishing your own story a little bit. Yeah, to some degree. And also being aware of others' versions of the story. Brian Epstein pretty much codified it when he put out a, a cellar full of noise. Th- this is how this all went down. And so one would be aware of that and not be anxious back in those days, particularly to come up with some other version <laughs> of it. I think over the years, you might even start to believe some things yourself. I think so. I agree with you. So we get Howard Goodall. The Beatles section is not overly in-depth, but there's some nice little bits and pieces as they go along. You know, it starts out with Drive My Car, and you see Ringo miming the drumming, and and Ringo tells us a little bit about why his style is so unique. I like that he talks about that he hits on the back of the pocket, whereas others are going to hit either the front or in the middle. He he intentionally chooses to hit in the back of the pocket. You know, I, I don't know whether that's an intention or not, because he's many times talked about the shoulder thing that is required for a left-handed drummer to be playing a right kit. He hits things slightly different. So I think he brings that up in particular for with uh, Ticket to Ride, that most drummers don't get that thing that he does, which is bringing that shoulder around to hit the snare. Actually, Paul has to do the same thing. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a different style, but you, you can hear the same sort of left-hander playing on a right-handed kit. Right. Please, please me. Gentlemen, you have your first number one. I do like his postscript there. Gentlemen, you have your first number one, which was bravado, really. <laughs> right. He's being a little bit self-deprecating there. I would think, yeah, that's a hit song. But you also realize, yeah, you don't know. There are lots of really great songs which, just because of circumstances, never made their way to the top of the charts or even into the charts. Right. I like Paul's comment. Because they had so little time, you learn to be brilliant in one and a half hours. (laughs) Right. And then George Martin just comes out and says it, that his job, what he was doing was streamlining, but it was all due to their genius. Again, he's probably not taking enough credit, but I get it. Yeah. Did he get his hand slapped when most of the reviews of Sgt. Pepper talked about the genius of George Martin? That was Time Magazine, and I mean, that was probably to a certain extent why things ended up going the way they did with George Martin and them on the White Album. Right. I also like the comment that he made about trying to get the boys in the studio as much as he could, but that Brian would kind of dole out bits of time to him based on their schedule here's a morning and here's an afternoon well i mean you know it's the same thing we heard when we were talking about the stowe school it's like there's just no time there aren't enough hours in the day we can give you enough time for one show in late afternoon on april the 4th in the middle of the week this then goes on to stories from other people who were around then talking about 37 weeks at number one in a year, which is still just a ridiculous accomplishment. For sure. Jerry, Billy, and Scylla, all in one day. That was also due to Brian. He was the one who brought these people to George Martin and worked out the schedule. 
so that they could have 37 weeks at number one. Everybody was in the studio at the right time and when they could be, just kind of offhandedly. I found myself completely wrapped up in my work and well, okay, yeah. That's when your first marriage just completely fell apart. Yeah. Again, this is not what this story is, but. But it's reality. <laughs> then a bit more about Paul and Ringo and, and how it's Judy they all actually loved. But they also got Judy standing on the table, putting a garter around her leg. Remember that? Yeah. She didn't need much persuading. <laughs> the Beatles loved her. Um, even though she was dead posh, she had an incredible sense of humour. And so we, I think a few of the Beatles fancied her as well on the quiet. We don't really want to hang out with him. It's Mrs. Martin we all love. <laughs> the great Judy, <laughs> who we thought when we started was the queen. She was so posh. Oh, hello. He was a bit posh, but she was over the top. They were really fans of her. And as George Martin says, you were the first big fan of theirs, so. Which isn't quite true, but we'll accept it. <laughs> then an interesting outtake from the Christmas records way back at Christmas time we talked about them and we talked about the available outtakes and this is above and beyond that this is something else we don't know what year this might have came from although there is a comment in there that he's gone independent with regards to George Martin so it had to be you know 65 or 66. Ladies and gentlemen I'd like to just now have a few words from our recording manager Mr. George George, George Martin. Martin. George Madison Martin. Here he is. George Madison. Come on, George. Say a few swinging new fab words for the Christmas market. It's been a switched-on year for George, too, fab Beatle people, and we all hope you appreciate it. Here he is. <laughs> he won't talk, Beatle people. He won't. Gone independent. One, two, three, sure, doll. Acquaintance be forgot and evermore to you know, sometimes you you hear something and you go, well, that that's that skit. They're just, it's another version of of what they talked about. This just sounds completely unique. Well, for the sake of old Lang Syne, that reminds me, Ringo. Yes. Last year, you was here. We was here, around the same old mic, down in the studio. Same old guitar, same old faces. It's the same old song. Listen for it. You know, we get about maybe 20, 30 seconds of it. John and Paul are there trying to get George Martin to say something, and, and he just doesn't. And George Martin... Do you think he actually didn't remember the Christmas records, or do you think this was just a little bit of play acting for the show? I don't know. I mean, you know, they did so much in so little time. Maybe he had just kind of forgotten about it. Quite possible, because what was it? Them talking? <laughs> you know, it's not something that you'd recall over time that you did that. So I don't know why he would remember necessarily. We go back into comedy a little bit. They keep weaving the comedy in and out of all of these other stories, which is kind of interesting. And, and it shows you how much the comedy actually really meant to George Martin. Well, you know, it didn't end with the Beatles or 
Jerry the Pacemakers or you know any of that stuff. Uh, he he was doing Peter Sellers well into sixty five. Maybe 66. What we get here from Michael Palin is the they, they meaning the Beatles, would always want to look beyond the horizon, which is another one of those really nice quotes. And it nicely fits in here. Then we get a version of the Rain story. It kind of sounds to me like George Martin is conflating a couple of things. I'd always heard that it was John who was stoned and put the tape on backwards at home and brought it in and said, can we play it backwards in the song? George Martin here is kind of saying, I stumbled upon this, and then I managed to slide things around, which he did probably have to do to make the backwards vocal fit. And then I played it for John, and John was knocked out. It's like, well, wasn't it that John brought it to you and said, find a way to make this work? Yeah, the thing about the Rain stories that John has a whole bunch of detail in it. I came home stoned, and I put it back to front, and my little tape recorder... I mean, he has a whole bunch of details. And so I, I tend to believe that he, he did that. I'm not saying that George Martin is lying. I'm just saying oh, no, that no, no. this is all from his point of view. And he he seems to have completely forgotten that it was John who bought it in and said, hey, can you do this? Yeah. I was trying to think in what situation would a EMI tape op do that to make Martin go, oh, that's an interesting idea. There's a bit of footage here, which is, I'm not sure what that is. It's it's in the studio, and you can see them sort of winding tape out and around the room. We know it's not the actual Tomorrow Never Knows session, which is the famous, you know, we had to do this. It may have been a recreation of it. I don't know what we're actually looking at in the video that we get here. How do you know it's not that footage? They didn't record. They didn't have film cameras there that day. Really? They just released a tape from Stowe School from 1963. Maybe it is, but I, it's been 12 years since we've had this. I think someone would have uh, told us. And neither George Martin nor any of the Beatles are the ones holding the extruded tape. So then the, a crucial part of that story is that we were rolling the pencils out and, and having it go around, and we had to time exactly how long it would take so the bird noises would come in at the right place. And At the same time, <laughs> I'll take the opposite tack and, and say, and yet they were going to do something that day that was totally unique, that it hadn't been done, where you're going to put together all this stuff. And so we should have somebody film this. This will be interesting. There's another thing, that, and that is it, they weren't all joined together. Yeah, yeah. They, so. they were being fed into a mixing desk. So it wasn't just some long piece of tape that went over a multitude of playback heads. Paul frequently describes the bringing in the little baggie full of uh, tapes that he had found. Now, I'm not sure why they have Paul there talking about going to the uh, optician and having the colored glasses made. <laughs> I mean, it's fine, great. It's a nice story. But <laughs> how is this a George Martin story? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> we need an extra 90 seconds. <laughs> From here through the end of Let It Be are, are all really pretty familiar stories to us. They are, although the, the piece that really made me go, oh, and that is George Martin saying on tape that he wanted Let It Be to be credited to him as producer. Produced by George Martin, overproduced by Phil Spector. That was when they pushed back. 
that was his rejoinder. <laughs> when the record came to be issued, EMI rang me up and said, they don't want your name on the record. It will be produced by Phil Spector. I said, but I produced all the original stuff that they worked on. Yes, well, that, I said, I'm not having that. But he definitely wanted to be credited as producer for that. He didn't go, oh, give it to Glenn Johns. It is different from either the Spectre version or the Glenn Johns version. Yeah. And even, you know, Paul and John have kind of said that they weren't looking to have George Martin producing it at that point. That they wanted to do something different with Let It Be. The interesting thing about this is, you know, they're trying to convince us now that, oh, well, the White Album wasn't necessarily this completely bad period. Oh, no, we didn't go into Abbey Road. We didn't go into the end saying, you know, last take, last this, last that, boys. And here it's like, oh, yeah, no, we absolutely knew it was the end. They even got Ringo there saying it, that any band eight years, it's got to end. I don't know that they all came to that in some big decision. Oh, this is it. I don't buy it because they continued to talk about it for a while. Well, until John got back from Toronto. It was then that they had that meeting. It's like, okay, it's done pretty much. John said, I'm out. And then it was like, well, you know, okay. Because George had quit and Ringo had quit and... So it was like, let John have some time. And and so they all continued to kind of say, yeah, and might drop a hit here or there. But I think George had a radio interview in New York, and he was like, yeah, well, we'll all do our little projects and probably get and back And we'll get to back together. Yeah, no, the, George Harrison did say that. I think they all did until it just kind of blew up. And that was in mid-1970. We move on to the post-Beatles period. And kind of as with everything else, it doesn't get enough of the film. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more on Air Studios and the building of Air Studios. Not just Montserrat, but the whole empire, as it were. He did so many acts in the 70s. Yeah, he stayed pretty busy. In volume two, Ken Womack has a couple hundred pages on George Martin's life in the 70s. And that's still not enough. I, I would have liked even more stories from the acts and you know making of all of these different records. Yeah, I, I agree. There are so many of those records that I really, really liked. And I was certainly aware that they're produced by George Martin. The Mahavishnu Orchestra, America, Jeff Beck. The blow-by-blow story, that was something that I hadn't really heard before. No, I hadn't either. He's letting me make stuff up on the hoof. And that's where I saw him get excited. And he go, okay, we've burnt that one out. Let's start and, and do something else. And we go, no, George, we really love where you're going with this. He said, no, I know you're going to overdo it. You're going to get sick of it. We're going to move on now. I gave it the title of Blow by Blow because when you do an extempore bit, you are giving it a blow. You know, it combined that with the effect of punching, you know, blow by blow. The, and everybody sees on this thing, great, great title. And I'm sure it had something to do with the success because, of course, it also meant something else. Have you ever heard Sea Train? Yeah. That's a great album. George Martin's comment on that was that period he was just feeling kind of liberated and for the first time he got paid well. Yes. <laughs> now make it somebody. <laughs> Although they very carefully omitted the Sergeant Pepper debacle, which <laughs> is also a George Martin thing. The film? Well, the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. 
not because it was terrible. I mean, it, it wasn't terrible, actually. The film was terrible, but the soundtrack was okay. I mean, we got the Earth, Wind, and Fire got to get into my life, and we got the Aerosmith come together. I mean, there were some weird things on the soundtrack, which had to be done because of the film. But in general, the soundtrack is not bad. George Burns, yeah. that's uh... Steve Martin. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I get that. Skip that one. They also avoid mentioning much about the other famous people doing Beatles songs, the uh, album that George did uh, in the 90s is what was, you know, officially his sign off the the In My Life thing. It's like the only time he ever really talks that much about it, he'll tell Robin Williams stories because Robin Williams was a part of that production but uh, you know he didn't really talk about that project that much afterwards we had a weird little segment of george martin talking about martinis because they keep wanting to make this james bond connection how to make a bad martini people will tell you not to shake it because it will bruise the gin i don't believe that it just makes it colder i understand his wrong opinion <laughs> so we, we get a little bit of monstrat we get in a different setting we get george martin and paul showing some photographs from Montserrat. That is a really nice portrait of George Martin that they show on screen there. Yeah. That studio looks great. Good records recorded there. And, you know, it's a shame what happened to that studio. But I kind of wish that he'd gotten his first choice, which was, you know, to have this cruise ship, which they could record on, although that would have presented its own logistical difficulties. <laughs> Harrison would have sent a card of him laughing. <laughs> really? A studio on a ship? Right. Okay. Well, I mean, Paul did it. London Town was at least half recorded on the sea. Right. I hear it wasn't easy, which is why half of London Town was recorded yeah. on the sea. Some of it was recording on a ship. Some of it was the uh, substances Paul brought with him, and then some of it was... <laughs> What was going on in Wings at the time? Well, for sure. Just the idea of a studio on a boat just cracks me up somehow. Electricity and water do not mix. <laughs> if you want to hear about Montserrat, there are other places, most notably the video of the concert for Montserrat that Paul had put together, which really tell the Montserrat story in detail. I like that film. You know, here, again, it's just kind of greatest hits. It's the highlights of, oh, well, well, I read about Montserrat on an airplane. I decided I wanted to go there and put up a studio, and I did, and it was great until the hurricane hit. Right. Then we went and looked at it. I lifted the lid on the piano, and keys looked like a snooker table. It's not good to have tropical heat and lots of dampness. Things grow very quickly. You kind of wonder how they managed to make it work with instruments. As we know from living in Houston, instruments don't like heat all that much. Right. Guitars will warp, much less staying in tune. That kind of brings us to the end of the film. We get George Martin being a little bit philosophical. That's the way of the world. You bring something out of nothing, but it always goes back to nothing again. That's the law of entropy, so <laughs> that is the way that works. We then sort of move on toward the last little bit. A lot of George Martin together with family, and they talk about scoring While My Guitar Gently Weeps for the love show. A favorite of mine. I like that. Again, given what we know, his comments about uh, being slightly worried working with Giles were 
interesting to me because we know that they've been working together for at least 10 years by that point. Or is it that George Martin just didn't consider what they were doing before then working together? Giles was his assistant. Well, that comment didn't necessarily mean right now. This is the way I feel right now. I mean, it mm-hmm. could have been like, this describes our relationship early on. Over the whole course of things, basically, once Giles decided that he wasn't actually going to become a musician, and, and then it's like, okay, this is in my blood. I like it enough. Let's go do it. And, and of course, again, as we got from Womack, what he was doing was he was actually learning from his father's ears because he could hear things and he could describe it to George Martin. It's like, well, no, adjust it this way. So he learned to produce from George Martin, which really does make him the perfect guy to be doing what he's doing now with the Beatles stuff. Yeah. Then there's just a little bit on a love. George Martin saying that he'd just gone back for what at that point was the fifth anniversary and that he hoped to be back for the 10th, which, well, sadly, he did not make. But it's still running and still going to be running for at least another year. That show has a little bit more life to it than maybe even they imagined at the time. Closing on the family together, and which is really what the story has kind of been about point. Here's my life, but my life is all about the family. You know, we're, gonna, we're both going to begin and end on the familial relationships. Yeah, good for him. If you're lucky, you get to be old. Exactly. All right. In general, it's a good special. If you do not really know much about the George Martin story, it works as a nice primer. It's a nice introduction to the other things George Martin did other than the Beatles. Yeah, because it's not a well-known story in this country at all. So so it's good. I would say go and look for the CD set, The uh, a Painter and Sound. That you can find reasonably cheaply from Cherry Records, reasonably cheaply being, you know, it's it's a four CD set and it it's about 30 to $40. So, you know, not hugely expensive. Uh, that is not on streaming. The produced by George Martin set from before, which does indeed include Beatles stuff and Paul McCartney solo stuff. It's really one of the few compilations where they actually allowed their material to go into. And if you're looking for the special, it is available on video. It is available on Amazon as well, but it has commercials in it. It is not cut, but it does have commercials in it. So be aware of that. Right. It's not crippling. It's not terrible. It does have commercials and a lot of people won't sit for commercials still. (laughs) I'm glad it exists. And I would kind of like to see someone do a more in-depth something on George Martin. This is another one that a biopic might be an interesting thing for someone to try and do. Interesting story, I think. So it, it would be a good thing to try. That is George Martin. We will be back next week with a new show. Yes, we will. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. If we had gone on recording, we would have done something like the Love Album. We would have interwoven 
songs into each other. And we would possibly have even had contrapuntal messages between songs. What I was aiming for was done later on when we tackled the show in Las Vegas of love. Because when I was commissioned to do this, my brief was very simple, but it was pretty difficult as well. My brief was, you can take any sound you've ever made with the Beatles since 1962, any song, any sound, any piece of noise, but you have to make a one and a half hour journey with that collection of sounds and it must flow from the beginning to the end. And that's the task we set ourselves. And that, if you listen to the Love album, that's really what I was trying to get at in the first place. And poor John never saw it. But I think he could have approved eventually. The Love album was released in 2006 with Sir George Martin and his son Giles working on a soundscape to accompany a show of the same name by the Cirque du Soleil. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. Hey. 